There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today we are joined by David Skinner, Sean Luchtel, Brennan Nading, Greg Godfrey, and Tony Peterson to discuss their best advice for killing a September whitetail. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we are talking September. We're talking how to master bow hunting the month of September. September's here. Opening days are kicking off across the country. It is a great time of year. And to help us get ready, I've pulled together with the Wired Hunt team a compilation of some of our very best guests who've talked about September hunting. And this podcast has been running for like seven years. And I know that most of you have not heard those episodes from seven years ago or six years ago or five years ago where a lot of really good stuff was covered. Maybe I sounded like an idiot, but the guests sounded good and they had some really helpful things. And I wanted to bring that back and make sure we'd all heard these things and picked up on all these great September tips. So Today, we're going to hear from, all right, so time out. We're not going to get to those conversations quite yet because I need to make an admission. After me and Tony talked about the game plan of having these different people from previous podcasts on to hear about how they hunt September whitetails, well, I actually went and started looking back through all of our past episodes. I spent, I don't know, two or three hours listening to archived Wired Hunt episodes, trying to find some really good stuff about September whitetails. And you know what I found? I didn't find crap. I found a very small amount of quality, focused content on hunting September deer. So huge oversight on my part. I guess I've not been doing a good job of getting people on specifically to talk about this early, early part of the season. Shame on me. Uh, Hopefully we can fix that today though, because since I didn't have any old stuff, I actually had to go out and find new people to talk to. So this is fresh, brand new spanking content from four really good deer hunters who are getting it done. As I mentioned, Dave Skinner, Sean Luchtel, Brennan Nading, Greg Godfrey. I all talked to them this week about 
how they're getting it done in September. And some of these guys are leaving, like as we're hearing this, they are on their way to September hunts of their own. So this is content that is fresh in their mind. These are ideas that they're going to be using right now, any day now. And hopefully you can too. If you are traveling to somewhere with a September opener or if you live in one of those states, this is it. And uh, I think you're really going to enjoy what we get into. We've got public land hunters. We've got private land hunters. We've got aggressive hunters. We have conservative, kind of everything in between. So no matter what your style is, I think you're going to be able to pick up some ideas that should help. So with that out of the way, back to me and Tony. But before we get to those guys, I wanted to kind of tee it up with my buddy, Tony Peterson, Mr. Foundations. How are you, Tony? Um, I couldn't be better, buddy. How do you feel about that? It could be Mr. Foundations. You've been doing it for three months now, something like that. How do you how do you feel about your Foundations podcast so far? Uh, I feel good, man. I I have heard from a lot of people on that podcast, and I feel you, you know how this is when you're when you're in this space and you're trying to create new content. There's always that unknown of like, is this going to resonate? Is this the right choice, or is it going to flop? And you know, some of your ideas are good, some of them are bad. And that one seems to be going over really well. Like I've, I've heard from a lot of people who are, you know, they're, they're listening and they're, they're using some of the stuff we're saying in there and they're just, they're using it as an, as a motivator to get out there and scout and, and hunt more and just be in the whitetail woods. And that's, that's a win, man. Oh yeah. I, I just got an email forwarded to me. It went to the mediator headquarters email and this person had said that they believe that Foundations is the single best podcast on the entire Mediator Podcast Network. So yeah, take that, kudos. Steve. Can we can we send that right to Steve? <laughs> oh, I made sure it's going to be in his inbox for sure. <laughs> uh, so well, well done, my friend. Well done. It's good stuff. Well, it's it's something that I actually want to listen to every week, uh, even though I had to review the stuff before we put out there on the air. I still am like, you know, I got to listen to that because there's there's good stuff. And uh, you're always someone who I I uh, value your opinion, which is which is why I've got you here again today. I can't get enough of you, Tony. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't take that out of context. Um, Too late. <laughs> so September. When uh, when I say September whitetails to you, what's what's like the first thing that comes to mind? Oh man, I, so many things, buddy. But just just the feeling of we finally get to do it again. Yeah, like I, you know, I'm a huge fan of September whitetails. I I always have been growing up in Minnesota and hunting all across the country. I just it's it's my favorite month. I know everybody picks November, but I love September and you know, you've got, you've got water to work with. You got food to work with. You've got those deer that haven't been hunted for nine months. And it's just a, it's just a kickoff, man. It's awesome. Yeah. Now you have one September whitetail hunt this year. Is that right? I have two, maybe, maybe two. I'm not sure yet. And then I've got my daughters, my, my goal, my biggest goal in September is to get my daughters on some uh, Wisconsin whitetails. That's what I've been working the hardest for. Nice. That's exciting. So Wisconsin whitetails for them. And then you've got probably, well, maybe not Minnesota cause you're saving that tag for other stuff, but maybe what, like a Nebraska or Dakota or something like that. Right. De- definitely North Dakota in the end of the month. And then I've got kind of a flyer for maybe going to Nebraska, but the timing is a little bit tight and I'm not sure I'm, I'm, my fingers are crossed on that one. And that, that will be early. So what 
do you think the most important thing is? So I love September too. And I was right there with you thinking September might bump November for me. I don't know. It's, it's, it's toss up between us two, but when you're setting foot on one of these hunts in September, and if I were to tell you there's only one thing you can focus on, you can't get the best of both worlds. You can't have this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing all lined up perfect. You can just kind of play off of one key factor. What would the one key factor you would really want to leverage to kill a deer on one of these September hunts be? Uh, I hate that you put it that way, and I know why you did. <laughs> you you wanted to take water out of the equation. Uh, well, that I could be have, your one thing. I know, but it can't because it's not available <laughs> everywhere. And it is a wild card. You know, I mean, obviously if you're, if you're a water hunter and you've, you've been staring at the drought maps this year and you're looking at, you know, the brown grass in your yard, like that's a, it, it could be a huge factor for September hunting, but you know, we might get a week of rain in the locality you're going to hunt. So I would have to say, if you give me one choice, like you did, I would say food, but it would be, I'd be gritting my teeth a little bit and, and squinting angrily at you <laughs> yeah that's that's what i was looking for um is is it is it fair to say that you will talk about water on foundations this month a lot is that thing yes okay that is that is fair to say okay. i mean I, I think it's just uh i know i know people kind of get sick of hearing me talk about it but it's just such a potentially useful thing to understand like we we talk about food all the time and we kind of like we're kind of dismissive of water but it's so variable in so many different situations and it can be the best whitetail draw in a specific area. Like it can be, you know, I interviewed our mutual friend, Andy May the other day for an article and he was talking about hunting. Uh, I think he said Kentucky in the early season, one year trying to kill a velvet buck. And he said it was, it was drought conditions, but he found a, uh, I guess a ravine or a gully that had some water, some little bit of pocket stagnant water left in there that hadn't all dried up. And he described it as the golden bait pile. He said it was unreal, <laughs> the deer coming in there. And, you know, you think about that scenario, you know, he's, he probably had all kinds of, of food to work with, but for a very specific location in, in very specific conditions to kill one, that was it. Yeah. And you make a good point in that oftentimes that can be the much more, uh, hard to find commodity compared to food in certain places, at least where there's bean fields or alfalfa fields everywhere, but there might just be one little isolated back in the cover water source. So yeah, those things all of a sudden have disproportionate value when they're rare. Oh, absolutely. And it, you know, the, they can change from year to year and they can really, that, that one can be really frustrating. You know, you might, you might plan on sitting water holes or tanks or something and then show up and there's been enough rain where you just totally underestimated the amount of water available, or you could go the other way and, you know, pull up your on X and see some ponds and go, okay, I'm going to check this one, this one, this one, you show up and they're all dry. Yeah. And it's like, okay, how, how do you reset that moment? Right. And then I guess, you know, that goes back to what you said at the top which is if you had to pick only one thing that will probably be consistent everywhere that will factor into every decision in some way, it's food, right? At this time of year, food is king. Um, that's, you know, that's what I would say too. every hunt that I'm going to be looking at in September. The first thing I need to think about is where's the quality food right now? How do I make sure that that can be something I can play off of? Um, what, what do people get wrong about food? Because I think most people know that early season is a food type of situation for most people. But 
what are we getting wrong? What are we messing up or making an assumption about that you found isn't always the case? Uh, does anything come to mind when we look at it from that angle? Oh, big time. It, it's riding a dead program on the food. Or I shouldn't say that. Uh, riding a dying program on the food that either, you know, either we're killing ourselves or we're killing with a bunch of other hunters who are out there on public land or on the property we hunt. It's it's only like base level worthwhile to know the destination food source. Like you might go on opening night and shoot a great big buck on a bean field. Like I'm not saying you can't do that, but that program, every time that you sit there, it, it, it tends to get a little bit less valuable. It diminishes. And so we sit there and go, well, it's September and it's the second week of the season. They still got to be coming in to this bean field or this alfalfa. I'm going to go sit on it. And by then they've encountered six different hunters walking through there and sitting on the edge. And in some places, you know, I know you've seen this in, in high pressure areas, they're already back to staging area stuff. And I honestly think when you take some of these really early season hunts now and some of these September one opener type States where you could maybe get a velvet buck, it feels to me like an over the counter elk unit where by the time you get there, even preseason, They've already, people have already scouted so much. They've pushed the deer back to the next level of cover. You know, like when you get out, if anybody who's ever hunted Colorado general unit stuff, you know, if you get out there now and you park at your trailhead and you go in a couple of days early, every meadow has been scouted and glassed. Every wallow has been scouted and glassed. Those elk haven't been hunted yet. And they're already pushed to like secondary level cover. A lot of times I, I feel like that happens with food sources in the whitetail world where there's a lot of hunting pressure too. And so not, not reacting to that reality is a big mistake when you're on a food pattern. Yeah, definitely. Definitely seen that too. Brings to mind though, another question, something I was thinking about a little bit earlier today. When I think about why September can be so great in a lot of cases, it's because you're getting to hunt them fresh before they've been hunted for, you know, they haven't been hunted for nine months, like you said. So they are relatively unpressured. But at the same time, you or whoever else is hunting would represent that first flurry of extreme pressure or in the days leading up to it, like you mentioned. So do you think in September, do you think you can get away with more or less than other months? So can you make a mistake or two September and they'll give you a free pass because this is the first mistake or two that they've had to experience? Or do you think that because it's been so wonderful for them that they notice this first flurry of movement and it's shocking to the system and they're changing up really quickly. What have you seen? Uh, I've, I've seen both. And I, I think, I think it's really important to anticipate that that's a possibility that, that they're going to break bad in a hurry. And they're, you know, one, one sit with the wind in the wrong situation or something might really, really change that dream spot you've been thinking about. But so again, it kind of goes back to like, what, how do you react to that? Like, what's your, if that happens, what do you, what do you do to counter that? And so I, I kind of play it like that, where I can be a little more cavalier and try to kill one right away, knowing that if I don't, or I screw it up, I either got another spot to go to that I have, you know, maybe it's a plan B, but I have some faith in it. Or it's like, okay, if I push these deer off, I know where they're going to stage from my winter scouting or from some other, you know, trail camera work or something maybe. And I go, okay, if this, I get a little risky here, but if this has a bad adverse reaction, I know where I'm going to go and try to stay on them. But I, I really think, you know, the, the beauty of the, the opening weekend or opening week 
hunt is because you have that to work with. Like you've, you've had so much scouting in and you have those deer that might be a little softer on the edges right now and you can get in there on them and they're just not expecting you there. That's a big advantage. It's about the best thing you can ask for. It really is. It's, uh, and I'm right there with you too. Like I like to take that hard swing on night number one or two, like right to that kill spot if you can, because either you, you get the, you get the job done, it works or it doesn't, but then, you know, okay, fall back and you fall back to that next layer. It's more like dive in further to where they fall back to, um, especially on like traveling hunts, like you and me will be on here in the coming weeks. Um, you got to keep on going to them. It's not like, Yep. A local spot where maybe you take a stab, like on my Michigan places, I'll usually take a stab. Now, this is October 1st, but I'll take that stab. And then if that doesn't work, then I fall back a little bit until the next kind of opportunity arises. While if I'm doing a week-long hunt, it's take that hard stab. And then if I push them back, now I'm going back to where they are. And then I'm going to go back in farther to where they are. And you're kind of just trying to preempt them a little bit. Um, but the the basic principle applies. Um it's 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 a fun time of year i think in particular uh, on top of all these things because there's so now this is place dependent but i feel like there's so much of an observational element to early season hunting like this especially if you're somewhere where there's wide open timber or wide open fields like some of these western whitetail states with early openers where it's you observe you strike again farther in, you glass from an observation tree or a knob, and then you see what they're doing, and they're on these bed-to-feed patterns so you know, so tight if you let them be that then you can slip right in there and get on them the next time they pump through. That's just, you know, other times of the year it might be a little more chaotic, but at this time it's, you know, that's what they're doing. And as long as you don't screw it up or somebody else doesn't screw it up, they'll probably do it again soon. And you can just, it's that, predator drone kind of hunting to a T I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great way to look at it and it's, it's nice to operate. You know, I, I do this a lot where I'm like, what he does today, he might do tomorrow. Yeah. And you know, when you talk about the rut, like that's not it, that the value of that statement and that hunting strategy goes down as the season progresses. But when you're talking September whitetails, what you see deer do today they very well might do tomorrow. And that's a huge opportunity for a hunter. Yeah. All right. I want to play a game, Tony. And it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know how far we can go, but the, the idea here is that, and I j- literally, this just came to my mind. So I've not prepared for this in any way. So I will probably lose this game very quickly, but <laughs> I just, I just want to see where this takes us. We each are allowed to say one sentence And that one sentence has to be like one piece of advice or one thing to think about when trying to kill a September whitetail. But you're only allowed one sentence to explain the entire concept or the entire idea. So you get a sentence and then I got to have my sentence ready as soon as you're done with your sentence. And then as soon as I'm done with my tip, you've got yours. And again, one sentence, this can't be like a paragraph long run on. It's got to be, it's got to be grammatically uh, allowed. And then whoever can't come up with their sentence loses. Are you ready? Oh man, I'm such a rambler. I feel like this, the odds are stacked against me here. Yeah, I get, I get to, I wish I had a buzzer. I need to get like a little sound pad so I can have a buzzer to, to tell you when you've lost. Um, but I'm going to go first and I'm going to say, find a green food source. You lost. <laughs> what? <laughs> No, go ahead. Go ahead. 
that you, do you know who would not win this? This is my daughters. Uh, <laughs> my not my nine year old daughters could not play this game. Uh, <laughs> so in response to yours, I would say play the conditions almost perfectly. Okay, I'm going to say manage your perspiration and exercise to minimize too much stink. And in response to that, I'm going to say, forget what Mark says and play the wind. <laughs> Touche. Um, uh, I'm going to say uh, uh, water. Focus on water if you got it. Faster. We got to go faster. I'm going. Uh, okay. Uh, stay <laughs> off your phone and glass as much as possible. I'm going to say look for tracks around water as an indication of where they might be congregating because it might be rare and yeah let's run on sentence mud look for tracks and mud around water is disappearing (laughs) (laughs) look for the very first rubs of the season and then observe there bring a thermocell or some kind of way to manage mosquitoes because that is important to enjoying it um don't forget to consider hunting mornings don't hunt mornings if you don't have a good plan for it. Make a good plan to hunt mornings. <laughs> if you're going to hunt mornings, make sure you've got a way to get in the backside and don't spook deer from the food sources and get in early. Access is everything and definitely you should hunt mornings. <laughs> I think that'll be a good way to wrap it up. <laughs> uh, hey, So, hey, Mark, can I tell you something that I, I heard was the best insult ever? Uh, the other day and I've been laughing about it nonstop. Yeah. Tell me. So I was talking to our mutual friend Hayden the other day Yeah, and Hayden said, Oh, did you know it was Mark's birthday the other day? And I said, no, I didn't know that, you know, and he, he said this and you can fire him if you want. I don't care. (laughs) Um, but he, he said, you know, Mark seems like the kind of guy who would request raisins in his birthday cake. I don't even know what that means, but I am offended. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like a, I mean, it's like a crazy insult that you can't really pin down. That's how good it is. You're like, that sounds so insulting, but it's also so vanilla. Like it's, it's perfect. I think and you, I, I think I've you nailed honestly it. been laughing about that ever since. I'm like, I love it when people give me the ammo to describe Mark Kenyon. Yeah, that one, uh, that one does it pretty well. Although I, I do not ever want raisins in my birthday cake. I will point out, give me. Give me a standard box cake from like uh, Pillsbury or whatever with chocolate frosting. And I'm very, very happy. All right. So <laughs> on, that, okay. on that note, buddy, uh, <laughs> let's let's tie up the loose ends here on our intro. Uh, I'll just tell folks to make sure to be listening to your podcast, your foundations episodes every Tuesday during the month of September, because I know that you've got this series related to water and things like that, that will definitely help people dive deeper into what's happening. So uh, make sure people do that. Uh, the second thing I'll tell you is that if you are not aware of this already, the third mini series for Wired to Hunt, we call it Rut Fresh Radio, that has started now for the season two. So every Wednesday, you'll get the Rut Fresh episode, which is our buddy Spencer Newharth and myself kind of teeing up every week about what's going on this week of the season. And then Spencer goes and talks to three or four or five hunters from across the country who've been out there doing it. 
and see what's happening, see how the hunts are going, see what they're learning, what's working, what's not, etc. Um, so that's every Wednesday, every Wednesday. Tony's Foundations is every Tuesday, and then the regular show is on every Thursday. So we are just we're giving you more whitetail know-how than you could ever ask for, I think. And uh, hopefully, hopefully it's going to help. What do you think, Tony? Yeah, they, they can just hit that subscribe button and they'll get all of them. That that would be the simple uh, thing to say. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, let's uh, let's quit while we're still ahead on the intro. Let's get into those other conversations about September hunting. And best of luck to everyone out there getting out for early season hunts. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bull saying If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill. And enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, without further ado, we're going to hear from David Skinner from Whitetail Properties first. All right, Dave. So, you're out there in Kentucky one of those Midwestern states with an early opener. So I know there's a lot of people that you spend time with who get out and hunt in September. I know some of your clients get out and hunt in September. If I were to ask you, 
What's the most common mistake that you see people making in that first month of the season? What is it? Hunting in the mornings, I think, is the biggest mistake I see people making. And uh, I think deer are really, I'll call them fragile at that time. They've been unmolested for months for the most part. And it's so much easier to slip in in the evening time uh, than it is in the morning. And it's so easy when you're hunting, really just a feeding pattern is what you're targeting at that time of year. And being on that food or, or really close to that food is simple in the evening time because you know that deer is in its bed. But at night, you have no idea where that, where that deer is. So slipping in, you know, early morning in the dark trying to get in your stand is by far the easiest way to bump a deer off of that pattern and, and mess that up for, for days, if not weeks at a time. Yeah. So what about the flip side of that scenario? So you hunt in the evenings and you said it's, you know, it's easy to get in for an afternoon hunt, but getting out is the challenge then. What's, what's your take on exit strategies for evening hunts in September to make sure you're not making the same kind of problems, just the reverse? So I've, I've told people before, I've, I've got the secret to killing a big deer. And the secret is, is pretty simple. You got to get in without him knowing you're there and you got to get out without him knowing you're there if you didn't kill him. And those entry and exit strategies are going to be different for every single property and every single scenario. Uh, typically, if I'm on a big deer, I've watched him and I know what he does. Um, and if he's feeding in the soybean field, for example, he may be out there at a well after dark. But if I've got him on like a staging food plot before he goes into the big ag field, I know that he typically leaves that food plot or that food source before he feeds on out into those bigger ag fields. That makes it really easy to slip out because I know where he is after dark. So if you can't identify where that deer is after dark, yeah, it's it's a sketchy it's a sketchy deal. You just got to figure that out. And I don't know that I can offer advice for that because every scenario is different. Um, I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but it would be really hard to nail something down other than just knowing where that deer is. Is he leaving that area? Is he feeding on across the field? I'll give you a really good example of this. Um, so farm that we've got over in Western Kentucky where our lodge sits, there's a um, hundred acre bean field. That's probably only about 60 acres bean field right in front of the lodge. And we can sit on the front porch and watch those deer as they come out in the bean field. And where we hunt them is literally right in front of the lodge. And you watch Whitetail Properties Television, there's been several bucks killed in Kentucky. We call it the Kentucky Buck Factory. There's been several bucks killed in that bean field right there in front of the lodge. What those deer do when they come out, they feed in the beans, and then they just they just keep going. They keep traveling uh, away from that area. But we can catch them right there, and then you just sit tight in that blind until those deer are fed well out of the way, and you can slip right out. What you don't want to do is try to get out of that blind while the deer are still right there in the field because you're going to blow them out. Yeah. Now, what's your take on vehicles? So if you're in a spot where, for whatever reason, you can't get out well, uh, I know a lot of people will turn to using someone picking them up on an ATV or UTV or coming in with a pickup. Uh, Do you think that works, or are you still screwing the pooch a little bit? You know, that's a a highly contested debate around hunting camp. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. It's kind of like making a mock scrape. Do you pee in it? Do you put other, some other kind of scent? I think it can all work at times. We've done it with great success, you know, driving in with a pickup truck and blowing those deer out. I feel a lot better about that than I do walking out and having deer sense me and blow out. Uh, I don't think they're nearly as threatened by that truck as they are, or, or ATV or whatever, as they are a person walking across that field. So I I think if you've got to do that, doing it with a vehicle would be 
the preferred method in, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's rewind a little bit cause we're talking exit, but I want to, I want to get a better sense of the entire setup, like, like the perfect setup. Let's say, uh, let's just say your only hunt for the entire year that you would get this year was going to be, you know, that first few days of September, that's all you get to hunt this year. And you knew this starting in February of the year. So you've got you know, the whole spring and summer to prepare for this situation. Tell me what would you do to create the perfect September setup for those first few days of the season? Um, paint me the picture of how you would change habitat or how you would set up a blind or a tree stand and, and what would you plant or not plant? You know, what, what would you do to paint this perfect picture? So knowing where that deer is at, where he's spending his time in the daytime, that's, that's, that's vital to the situation. You just can't guess. Uh, you've got to have a pretty good understanding of where he's coming from. And I'm assuming it's a deer I have history with multiple years. So I'm going to have that past history to know what kind of travel routes he's taken to and from that feeding area and from his bedding area where he's bedded at. Um, screening cover was one of the first things that popped in my mind. If I've got that long to plan and I'm, I'm really putting forth 100% effort to kill that deer in early September, um, I'm going to have some good screening cover to allow me to get in and out of, the, of that area. Um, and hunting the right wind is absolutely vital. Uh, and I had a pretty similar situation to this a few years ago. It wasn't that I was limited to hunting September, but I knew exactly where this deer was bedded. I knew exactly where he was feeding at almost every single day, probably six out of seven days. And as far as I was concerned, all I needed was the right wind, and this deer was dead. And opening day, I needed a northwest wind, and opening day come around, and we had like seven days of east winds. And I sat at home twiddling my thumbs because – the, the scenario I had created depended so much on that west wind that we usually get. And here we have a week of east winds that just blew my plan all to pieces. Had I really put forth the effort, I could have designed a, a scenario where I could have got into my stand. would have been marginal, but there was a way that I could have gotten in my stand with some screening cover with that, with that east wind. Um, what's crazy is on the seventh day when I finally got in that stand, the deer was there, but he just didn't give me a shot. And I didn't bump him. He disappeared that evening, you know, went the way I expected him to. And he never showed back up at that spot. I don't think it was, I don't think it was something I did. I think it was just that pattern was over. And that's why that window is, that window is so short in, in early September to catch them on that feeding pattern. Um, especially when you're hunting soybeans. When do you see that change there in Kentucky? It really depends. It depends on the variety of soybeans planted more than anything. Uh, it also can depend greatly on the acorns. White oak, white oak acorns can drop sometimes in pretty pretty early in the month of September, and all bets are off if you get if you got a real heavy acorn crop, which we get about every other year. You can almost time it. Um, uh, I, I probably within ninety percent accuracy, you can dig, you know predict what's going to be a heavy acorn year based on what happened the year before. Um, so if those acorns happen to drop early, which they can, and they have done all bets are off, man, he's not going to be in that soybean field. I don't know how, I don't care how bright green they are and beans, you know, and I, I'm not a farmer by any means, but the way I understand it, beans have different maturity dates. Um, and the photo period affects when they turn and, and change. And when we start seeing the first hints of yellow 
on those beans, the, the bucks lay off of them. They're on to some other. That's typically what it is. So it really depends on that specific bean field. And where I hunt at, we get um, a lot of farmers that will double crop their beans so that they plant winter wheat. Uh, it'll be, they'll plant corn. When they harvest the corn, they'll come back in and they'll plant wheat for the winter. And then they harvest that the next summer and then they drill beans into that. That is the prime opportunity to kill a buck on in velvet because those beans will not start turning until the second or third week of September sometimes. Yeah. So that's the the opportunity you're looking at. So if they planted them beans, you know, in, in early, late April, early May, you can just hang up killing a buck in September on that bean field. It's not going to happen. Start looking for another bean field. Hmm. What do you do in those years when you do have that bumper white oak crop, acorns? Those are all over the place. They're not hitting your big open food sources like you thought. Uh, do you do you tear in there into the timber and try to get after them? Or do you then say, all right, it's just not going to happen early season. I'm going to wait till there's something else I can get a better handle on. What do you think? If I, if I were a college football fan, I'd be watching college football. I'm not. Um, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, in all seriousness, man, I never have been a good acorn hunter. When there's a bumper crop of acorns, there's so many. It is it is a challenge to figure out where those deer are going to be, and it's a challenge. You know, I hear it all the time, and I would I would rather not have acorns personally um, than than have a bumper crop. It's great great for the deer, I guess, but it's not good for a deer hunter because when there's food literally laying everywhere. How do you how do you how do you figure it out? I haven't yeah. I haven't been able to. And I hear people say you all you got to find the trees that they like the most. Well, you know our 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 hardwood forest. I don't know if I want to use the word predominant, but there, we have a lot of white oak here. So on those heavy years, man, there's just literally you trip over it. I've been sitting in the deer stand for the third fourth week of September, you know, thinking I'm going to get a buck, you know, early on, and and it sounds like. It sounds like it's raining in the woods. Acorns are just coming down everywhere, and it's it's like as early on probably um hunting with less strategy back then but seriously i just find something else to do i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get in there and blow that deer out maybe or or make a make a mistake i'd rather just concentrate my efforts then you know i, I start looking for that late october pre-rut type uh scenario or or the rut is, is what i start looking at yeah. i'm sure that's not an ant it's gonna sit well with a lot of people but that's that's really the way i look at it so you mentioned of course, acorns being a challenge at times. Uh, you mentioned beans being something you can really key in on. Uh, for people that don't have one of those food sources, are there any other September foods that you find particularly worth taking a look at and trying to get on? So natural foods, you know, there are some things that you can look at. I pointed out this quite frequently when I'm riding around on a buggy with, at least in Kentucky, this may not hold hold true other places but we've got a weed here called jewel weed it's it's pretty common i think over a large part of the united states it's just a wild native plant that that grows it's got a little orange pretty little orange bloom on it and there's something about that plant i've seen it time and time again that right around when our season opens something happens to that plant and it turns into like deer candy one day it'll be it'll just be a plant there and then the next day it's it's mowed down to near enough it looks like someone's hit it with a weed whacker <laughs> i've seen it time and time again i've never taken the opportunity to try to key in on that but it's something i've noticed you know year in and year out on certain farms and, and certain areas don't know if that holds true everywhere but it's definitely something worth worth maybe exploring um, persimmons is one uh i remember a hunt years ago um i've got 
I had. I don't have permission to hunt the property anymore, but there was only a few persimmon trees on it. There was one that was huge. It was as big around as my, it was as big around as my 20 year old waist, not my 46 year old <laughs> waist. Um, but anyway, the big, big persimmon and it was loaded this one particular year. And, and I went in an evening time. It was about, I don't know, second, third week of, of September. This was pretty early in my, in my bow hunting uh, career. I think I had a couple of bucks under my belt, but I was, I was, the guy that was holding out for a bigger deer pretty early. And, and I remember passing on a couple of nice bucks under that persimmon tree. And, uh, that, that, that food source has always stuck out in my head. I've, I've never shot a buck under a persimmon tree, but it's definitely one of those natural food sources that deer are going to key in on that time of year. And then there's food plots, man. I love food plots. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different seed varieties. And again, what I'm going to say may not work in your area, but here in Kentucky, where I'm at, I love daikon radish, uh, groundhog forage radish is a name brand, but um, they're the big, the big long green tubers that they come out of the ground. They don't have to get a frost on them for them to be attractive. And for that September and October time frame, they're as attractive of, of a food plot planting as I have found. And I always mix in some some cereal rye or cereal grain rather wheat rye oats, and that's really attractive at that time as well. So. Um, those are just a few, few yeah. options, I would say. What about the second part of the equation? You mentioned when we were painting the ideal scenario, if you were trying to kill that buck in September, you had to know where he was bedded. Where, what kind of places, what's the situation that's ideal for a buck bedding kind of area in September? Because uh, in some, some places I've seen they'll bed in very different places in September than they would in November, let's say, or December. What's that September bedding looking like for you that, people could think about when they're trying to key in in this time of year and figure out where are these bucks starting from? Yeah. Um, here's, here's what I, here's what I, I think is true. And, and it's, it's going to vary again on your topography and, and the vegetation types and, and, and that sort of thing. But what I have noticed, okay. So here in September in Kentucky, I killed a buck on the third day of the season a few years ago. It was 96 degrees um, that day when I shot that deer. That's flipping hot, man. I was miserable. And I <laughs> yeah. can promise you those deer are just as miserable as you are. You know, they live in those conditions, but it's not fun. So they're looking for something to, to protect them from the sun, to protect them from the heat. Um, and, and areas that jump out at me are, are low-lying creek beds and, and things like that um, where they can they can get a few degrees cooler versus, you know, where they're not going to be bedded at is out in the middle of a CRP field. Um, I don't think that's happening a whole lot in September. You, you know what I'm saying? So you can kind of eliminate that um, and you look for shaded areas, you know, cedar thickets are our areas that, that are typically a little bit cooler than they are in more open hardwood type timber. Um, and, you know, deep valleys, deep draws, ravines, that sort of thing, I, I think are um, some areas that you can look for. But man, it's just, it depends on the buck, you know, and, and I, I just told you that they won't be out in the CRP fields and I got to renege on that, on that comment because the buck I told you about earlier that I had him all planned out, that's exactly where he was bedded. Huh. Uh, but that was such a, such a unique situation. I, I think it just depends on the deer, um, you know, but typically I think of those areas that where the temperature is going to be just a little bit cooler. Um, and, uh, maybe they have just a little more protection from, from the heat and the, the elements. Yeah. You mentioned like a low-lying creek bed, which then brought to mind just water as a factor in September in exactly. general. How does, how does water ever factor into your September hunts? 
You know, it's a good question. Um, I've never, I've never keyed in on that, but I will tell you that my buddy Todd Bigby out in Kansas keys in on it every year, and he has great success using water tanks um, to draw those deer in. No different than a lot of guys may use that, put out a feeder or whatever. Um, but water tanks, um, something where you can provide them with. I have enough water around. It's really hard to kind of key in on it. Most of the properties I hunt have natural water sources. It's been hard to key in on it. But if you're in an arid area or your property doesn't have water, by all means, figure out a way to, to get some water because that could be huge. But I've not ever had the opportunity to really make that a part of. Um, and when I'm, you know, when I'm managing habitat, I'm installing water near food sources. Why? Because I know they're going to want that food source. They're going to want that water. If I can put everything they want in one area, I, I feel like I've, you know, within reason, I, I feel like I've accomplished something and I just up my odds of, of getting that deer there in daylight. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, well, I want to wrap it up with this one. Uh, what do you think is worse when hunting in September for you in Kentucky, at least, is it the bugs or is it the heat and whichever one you pick, how do you deal with it? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going to say the heat. Uh, I have hunted where I had mosquitoes pretty bad. Um, and the little fighting, fighting midges, but my thermosail is always with me. So that's a, that's a pretty easy solution to, to the bugs, the heat, there's no, the heat by far is, is worse. And there is no, there is no solution, but you will see me. We hunt out of banks blinds a lot. Um, we bow hunt out of them. It's, it's, they're so good at containing your scent. And I know there's no way you, you can't beat a deer's nose, but anything you can do to help, I, I try to do it. We hunt out of those blinds a lot, and it is it is miserable. If it's ninety six degrees <laughs> outside, it's one hundred and forty inside that blind. Yeah. It's a sauna. So I, I shot a buck a few years ago down in Georgia um, at the Gopher Plantation. It was it was an invite hunt with with um, Big Deer TV. Uh, Big Deer TV. I think I can't think of the host name right off. But anyway, um, they put me on television walking into my blind with my lacrosse boots on and shorts and a t-shirt. That's the way I hunted all evening <laughs> to try to beat that summer heat. But I was in a blind, you know, and it worked, worked out great. Um, I've got a little Ryobi one plus battery operated fan that I put in those blinds with me. Um, and call me a wuss if you want, but it, it helps. Um, but in a deer stand, man, I just, you know, I, one of the things I've done year in and year out is these little, uh, scent wipes, I don't use them because I feel like they kill the scent, but they're wet, they're moist. Even baby wipes, unscented baby wipes, I'll take them into the tree with me, wear wear a t-shirt, I'll change shirts, I'll put that sweaty shirt into a into a gallon Ziploc bag, stuff that down in my backpack, and then I'll just kind of bathe in that tree stand with with those cool wet wipes to get try to get as much of the scent off of me. And once I'm not walking, you know, I, I cool down a little bit, and that that moisture evaporating will cool you down. Then I put my hunting shirt back on and or a hunting shirt on, you know, some sort of camouflage shirt, lightweight, thin, um, and, and get back to hunting. But to be honest, I killed a beautiful velvet buck a few years ago. And, um, that's probably, that probably was my retirement gift to September bow hunting. <laughs> it is so hot and miserable. I'm not saying I'll never do it. If I had a 200 inch deer in, in full velvet, you know, I'm I'm definitely going to get out to hunting. But I'm done hunting 140s and 150s in September. I can tell you that. Um, it, it's just it's just miserable. There's no way to beat the heat. There's no way. I will tell you this though. If you can catch, I'll, I'll end on this. 
uh, if you can catch a cold front in September, it can be it can be magical. And I, I'll tell this real quick story. A few years ago, um, the farmer the farmer where I was hunting had had started cutting some some corn. I don't know what happened if his combine broke or whatever, but he got about six or eight acres of this hundred acre cornfield cut right in the corner of of the field, and um, uh, it left a lot of standing corn. Up and the wind was wrong for me to hunt my deer stands, but it was perfect for me to slip in there and sit on a five-gallon bucket in that cornfield right on the edge of where it had been harvested. And Saturday and Sunday, the opening weekend, it was 96 degrees, and I'm looking at the weather, and on on Sunday night, we had this cold front blow in, and it went from 96 to 64 overnight. It was spitting rain. It was misty. It just felt like fall. You know, it was perfect. And I got in there on my bucket, and uh, there was there was a couple of three year old ten pointers out there chasing does like it was November. It's the craziest thing I'd ever seen. And um, I whiffed the shot at one of them at about mm. twenty five yards, hit hit the hit the, the stalk of corn, and sent my arrow sailing you know thirty yards out of out of range. But it was a pretty magical pretty magical weekend. So if we can catch one of those weekends this September. I'll be I'll be in the woods, you know, because those deer will will feed early on those cool those cool evenings. It's just a rare thing to catch. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping and praying for one of those two, Dave. So, uh, appreciate you taking the time and and good luck this season. Hey, thanks Mark. Y'all have a good one. All right. Next up, we're going to hear from Greg Godfrey from tethered nation. All right, Greg, we're talking September. And when I say September whitetail hunting, What's the most important thing? Like, what's the thing that pops up in your mind as the top headline when it comes to how you're going to kill a buck at this time? It's got to be food. I mean, at this point in time, the bucks are still grouped up in their bachelor groups. They're not worried about seeking does. They're they're not worried about their pecking order just yet, especially early September when they're still in velvet. So it's all about the food. My favorite food source this time of year is beans. If you're somewhere where, where there are beans, it's phenomenal. Where I live in Georgia, we don't have any ag. It's all it's all swamp country. And uh, at that point, I really focus on persimmons. The, the deer love persimmons early. They seek them out. They'll paw them out of the ground. They'll walk a long ways to get them. Uh, but up in ag country, really focus on beans. What about a situation down in the south with those persimmons? Um, I've never hunted anywhere that I came across them, but I know lots of times I find like an isolated apple tree or something up here in Michigan. That's, that's like the spot to be, uh, with persimmons. Do you find them in that kind of situation where there's, there's one and that's the obvious one, or are there places where there's a whole bunch and they're spread around and you're faced with this dilemma of like, how do you pick the right food on an early season hunt with mast in mind? Um, you know, what's, what's your thought process when it comes to trying to pick the right tree or the right patch? I would say it's real similar to what you face up in Michigan. I used to, when I was in active duty, I was stationed at Fort Drum, New York, and there were a lot of wild apple trees and a lot of old farmsteads. And it was kind of the, the same way I hunted persimmons in the South. I would hunt those apple trees, probably the same tactic that you use, Mark. If you find one alone next to thick security cover, that's going to be just a home run. But a lot of times the persimmons down here, it, it will be the same way. You'll find one and it's just full of fruit. I've, I've encountered them where the branches were hanging. It was so full of fruit that it was just hanging down, almost touching the ground. And a persimmon tree is really tall. So a lot of times 
that's how you can even spot them because they'll be up above the rest of the canopy. And uh, so a lot of times the fruit's way up high. But yeah, if you can find a lone persimmon tree next to thick cover, next to swamp, next to bedding, next to something like that, that's going to be a home run. Yeah, that that sounds that sounds like a nice setup. Now, now back to ag country. Then I know you're heading to North Dakota soon, where you've got some of that ag. Uh, I'm thinking it's public land, and a lot of people when they go on these traveling September hunts, like you're going to do, they're heading to a place that they don't know terribly well. Maybe they've never been there before, and they've got a short amount of time. And so, again, the same question, like finding the right food. I know that beans are important, right? But when I show up and there's thousands of acres of beans on all sorts of different parts of the state and I've got multiple public options I can look at, how do you go about narrowing down? Like what's the right bean field to be close to? What's the right spot to start on my September short you know, week trip? So for me, the number one factor almost always in any field any phase of deer season, whether it be the rut, early season, late season, e- even if I'm hunting food or bedding or whatever, the next the next factor is almost always pressure. So you're right. In North Dakota, there's billions of beans. They're literally everywhere. And what sets one part one apart from the next can be difficult. But if you can find one that is hard to access, maybe it's a long walk, maybe you have to scale a, a a creek cliff or something, or you have to get in a boat or put your waders on and cross some water, any sort of obstacle that will keep hunters away and make the pressure just marginally lower is where I have had the best success. It's, it doesn't seem to be the magic bullet if there even is such a thing in whitetail hunting, but if you can find the food and then you can find the food that's less pressured, it with whatever obstacle it is, it's keeping hunters out. That is the next the next best thing for me. Yeah. Speaking of that pressure, here's something that I've that I feel like I've kind of anecdotally noticed. I wonder if this is something you've seen. It seems that in you know late October, November, or December, when all the leaf covers down, it's easier for other hunters to go deep because it's just easier to walk. It's not as uncomfortable. You can see farther, so you can see. Oh wow, there's this other thing 400 yards down the way. Uh, I'll, I'll keep going to get there. But when you get to September, when it's a jungle in certain places, it seems like people just aren't as willing to push through all that jungle cover because it's just like I said, uncomfortable, thorny, pokey, leafy, wet, humid, uh, and you can't see anything. So you don't know what is ahead of you. And so, so it seems like on average, maybe the pressure doesn't push in as far in these early September hunts because of that. Maybe is that, is there anything to that? Have you seen that? And that maybe it opens up more of that faraway stuff on these early September hunts than you might be able to take advantage of in November when everyone's pushing in? I would completely agree because it does it to me. If I have to walk through briars and nasty stuff and get cut up and get wet and gross, yeah, I don't want to do it either. So yeah. <laughs> in Georgia, if I'm just being honest, I'm probably not going to do it. I'm probably <laughs> going to grab a boat. And I'm going to go around the river and I'm going to find a spot that is really easy for me to get to using a creative access like a boat. But then again, in Georgia, where I hunt in the swamps, there's really not a lot of trophy potential. So it's kind of like, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze and a, and a you know, mature deer will be 130 pounds. So it's a lot different when I'm up in North Dakota and I know that 
you know, a hundred and a big deer, I, you know, score isn't really that important to me, but a big trophy animal that is willing to go on my wall. That is uh, something that is realistic. So it makes it a little bit easier for me, but I think you hit the nail on the head. This, the early season, I think people get complacent too. I know I do. I guess I can speak for me. I'm like, Oh, it's the first week of September. The hunting's not even really that good yet. You know, I got to wait till the first week of November. Then I'm really going hard. Right. So I think it's also easier to get complacent early in the season because, you know, you have, you know, quote, the best hunting is still yet to come. Yeah. So uh, let's break down an example. You killed a darn nice buck in September last year, right? And it was kind of a situation like we're discussing here. Can Can you... Correct me if I've got anything wrong there and then lay that out a little bit more. And, you know, you didn't have to push him too far, I don't think, on that hunt. How did that work out? That hunt, I killed that buck. Um, I didn't score it, so I don't know what it scored. But I'm just for, for reference, it's probably, you know, a mid-130s nine point. Um, but he was an absolute giant deer. Uh, everyone, when we walked up on the deer after I killed it, everyone was like, holy crap, that thing is a horse. He had to be 300 pounds. I mean, he was a giant, wow. um, but it, probably not 300 pounds at this point in time, but one of those deer that would have been 300 pounds, if, if that makes sense. He was longer than me. There's a picture of I, I'm a short guy, but still <laughs> I laid down next to the deer after we took the gripping grand photos and yeah. the deer was longer than me. Jeez. Um, but yeah, you you pretty much nailed it. That was uh, that was a, a North Dakota public land hunt. We it was the second or I think the second to last day of the hunt. Hadn't had a whole lot of success. I had had one other opportunity at a mature buck. He, he just didn't come in close enough. It was a big buck. Um, and then we found this little kind of I don't necessarily want to say it was an overlooked piece, but the way we accessed it was unusual so in north dakota the laws are uh if private land isn't posted accordingly then you can you can hunt that land and you can access that land as long as you follow a a set of rules that that they have now they've they've changed that up a little bit for the 2021 season but last year 2020 it was completely legal and so we accessed through a private piece that wasn't posted that gave us access to a, a portion of the public it would have been really, really difficult to get to with the traditional parking lot access. So I think that's really where we killed the buck was thinking through it creatively and coming at it from a, a way that I, other hunters just weren't thinking about. And I could actually see my truck. I was in the tree and my truck was maybe 40 yards from, from me. Huh. And I mean, I could literally see the truck. That's amazing. And the way it happened we had planned to walk down and hunt this oxbow in a river afternoon hunt, and it was really thick, so we figured there'd be bucks bedding in there. So we were going to hunt the edge of the of the bedding and try to catch them coming out to the ag fields. Well, we walked 20 yards in from the private land, and there was just sign everywhere. I'm talking tracks and, and fresh droppings and rubs, and this is the first week of September, and I'm like, holy crap, I was hunting with – Carl, the Michael Jordan of sewing for tethered <laughs> and, and both he and I kind of looked at each other and we so had, you know, three quarter of a mile walk ahead of us. And we were like, should we really hunt right here, right next to the truck? I mean, all the sign was there. If we had found this spot three quarters of a mile deep in the public, every hunter in America would have set up on this sign. It was that fresh and that 
good. But it was just so close to the edge that we thought, oh, this is this for real? And, you know, we, we, we went ahead and followed our gut and we set up right there, 20 yards in the woods, 40 yards from my truck. I could see the truck. And we had uh, six bucks in total come in on us and two shooters. And I, I just was fortunate to get the biggest one out of the whole bunch. That's incredible. Uh, so here's a question. A lot of folks, when they talk September, especially folks that are hunting private land, really talk about being really selective with when you hunt. You know, writing for the, waiting for the perfect conditions and keeping tabs on a buck. And when they, you know, on opening night, if they're moving in daylight, they go in for the strike. But if it's, you know, not the right wind or not the right weather, they're going to wait. That's, you know, a tactic or general approach that a lot of people take. On the flip side, when you're on a public land hunt like this, my assumption is that you're saying, forget about all that stuff. I've got five days. i got to hunt. Um, is there any way that wind, I mean wind obviously, but weather, does weather impact what you're doing at all? Do you get more aggressive when you've got those great cold fronts or are you just going for balls to the wall the whole time? Well, I think, I mean, you pretty much laid it out. When you're on a, when you're taking time off work, you've got vacation days you're using and, and you've only got, you know, five, six, seven days to hunt. I mean, you're pretty much going to go balls to the wall. I don't, I don't really see any way around it, especially if it's not your home turf and you're not too worried about boogering up a deer. Um, I, I know me personally, that's what, I, that's what I've done on my early September hunts, which I've really only done a couple cause I've, I've only really ever had a chance to do it a couple times, but yeah, I, there was, there was not really any waiting around for a cold front or the right perfect scenario just because it's, we're limited by time. Now, if I lived in ag country and I had access to maybe some private land and I think I probably would do that. I think that would be a way more mm, precise way of doing it to, to surgically pick apart your area and really hunt your trail cams and really understand how the deer are moving and then move in for the kill. Uh, one of my hunting heroes, John Eberhart, that's exactly how he does it. Another guy, Andy May, that's exactly how he does it. Mm -hmm. I've seen him do it and those guys are killers and if I had that opportunity, that's probably the tactic that I would use. But uh, I mean, I, I live in Georgia and I drove 26 hours to hunt North Dakota. So I'm not going to sit out just because it's hot. Yeah. So speaking of hot, let's wrap it up with this one. Most people would look at September hunts, whether they're in Georgia or North Dakota or Kentucky or parts in between a lot of these early September openers. And they're thinking it kind of sounds miserable if it comes to the heat or the bugs, mosquitoes or ticks, stuff like that, do you have a trick to dealing with either one of those things? Anything to help deal with the discomforts of September hunting? Well, so, I mean, thermocells. I, I think anybody in the South, probably nationwide, knows about thermocells. Thermocells work. Yep. Uh, down here, I take a thermocell with me in Georgia pretty much through November, uh, you know, certain, certain years. So a therm, I absolutely believe in a thermocell. The other thing is lighter weight gear. You know, it, there's lots of good tree stands out there and other saddle systems out there that can lighten your load significantly. And the, the fewer pounds that are on your back, the less you're going to sweat, uh, the more comfortable it's going to be once you're climbing the tree. So I would say gear probably makes a big difference and also clothing. Uh, I'm a big fan of the, the Merino wool like you can find in First Light and 
some other brands out there. There's lots of places you can get Merino. Um, but that's a big dif- a big difference maker to me because it, it, it wicks the sweat away. It cools you off. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would say that's it. But mostly it's just for me, it's just grin and bear it. And uh, if I'm honest, I don't grin and bear it too much down here in Georgia. <laughs> I don't really get started until like mid-October when it cools off a little bit just because I'm a baby when it when it comes to Georgia hunting. It can be uh, uh, it can be tough even in the hot days in Michigan on October first. I don't I can't imagine early September or mid September in Georgia. So, Greg, this yeah. is perfect. I appreciate it. I can't wait to hear how the September North Dakota hunt goes for you. Thanks, Mark. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. All right, moving on. Let's get in it with Sean Luchtel from Heartland Bowhunter. All right, Sean, when you think of September bowhunting, What's the first thing that comes to mind when you're thinking whitetails in September? I would say the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is a cold front. 
on uh, on a green some sort of green food plot and if i have that scenario you can usually count on it being pretty good when you say green food plot like what's your ideal early season september green food plot i mean there's a bunch of different green options out there if you could pick your your spot what would it be you know I go back and forth between brassicas and clover. Um, I used to not be a huge believer in clover until we started planting it more often. And each year I become more confident in it. So I can't say one or the other, but uh, it just depends on what is showing up on the trail cameras on, on either one of those plots. But if I absolutely had to choose one or the other, I'm actually leaning more towards clover now. Um, being that that green food source because of the tonnage that it puts on, um, the fact that it can just continually be browsed on the browse pressure and um, and come back and provide more food. Whereas with your brassica blends, um, that tends to get eaten down and it it's not going to come back once they've eaten it down. Yeah, so you know a lot of people talk about brassicas being a late season thing when supposedly they get more sugary, and then of course there's the bulbs and stuff. Are there any particular brassicas that you find are that early season attraction, uh, or are you finding just about anything out there that they'll start hitting those greens earlier than maybe some people expect? Yeah, I would say that uh, um, having radishes blended in with with your turnips tends to help bring the, the deer in earlier on. They seem to focus more on radishes. I've, I've done them separately and that works as well as long as you have a big enough radish plot, but I've had, I'd say the majority of our plots are between a half acre to an acre. And if it's just strictly radishes, they'll wipe the radishes out um, early on. I mean, at least on our farm where we have a little bit higher deer, uh, deer pressure and larger population. Gotcha. So what about on one of these spots, if you had to kind of map out the ideal setup? So I know you mentioned you want a cold front, you want the green food source, so it's a clover plot, but how would you map out, maybe you actually have a spot like this on one of your places that you hunt. Can you map out like the ideal way you would access, where your tree stand would be positioned, what the food plot would be shaped like, where it would be in relation to bedding cover or staging areas or, or anything like that. Can you kind of paint me a picture of this perfect September stand site? Yeah. So the one that actually first comes to mind is one that we've got uh, on our farm that I'm, I'm headed to right now. And that's our main farm in Northern Missouri that we hunt. And this plot particularly really isn't all that far from the house, which is ideal for early season and late season or any really for that matter, any time of the fall um, because of the access. It's not, it's got to be, I don't know, two to 300 yards from, from the house and you're traveling north to get to it. So it's set up for a north wind, your field or your wind blows back to the south, which is where you've come from. And, um, there's a, an ag field this year, it's in beans that's to the south and, and also to the west of this particular spot. And it's set up perfectly as more of a staging plot. So the deer come out of the woods, um, into this plot which all the cover is to the north and to the, to the east and a little bit to the west, but not, not so much like it is to the north and east. And so these deer come in to this food plot. It's fairly secluded. We left a layer of trees in between this plot and um, the ag field, which is the destination food source. And, you know, you can count on a lot of deer piling in there prior to them going out to that ag field and having a north wind uh, following a cold front with high pressure system is just ideal and, 
perfect setup in my mind for uh, early season success. And you can get in there pretty well undetected and getting out, you can get, get out pretty well undetected. So if, if you're late getting in there, which is sometimes the case for all of us, <laughs> you can usually still get in there without the, the deer knowing that you're there. So what does that mean for the stand actually is, are you not right on the edge of the field or like, how do you get in there without deer seeing you? So right yeah, there? that is in this particular spot, there really aren't any good trees. And I know we've all been there and I actually had a guy asking me about that the other day and he just, he wanted to be in a tree and I want to be in a tree as well. I, I prefer being in a tree just because of the environment and um, just being out there and in the climate and all that um, experiencing it all. But, for this certain situation, there is not a tree that will work. So we have a little elevated blind that we put in there. Um, and it, it, you know, you can get into that thing fairly quickly. I've also used little hay bale blind as well. And mm-hmm. that seems to work, work good too. But yeah, so unfortunately in the, in this situation, we have to hunt out of a blind and, um, it, you know, it's comfortable and it's great, but me particularly, if, if we can be in a tree stand, it seems to be, uh, just more of, the element of bow hunting. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. The, the feel, I mean, as effective as those blinds mm-hmm. are and I've used them and you're right, they work in a lot of situations, but the feel is just different. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of these early season, you know, September food related hunts, um, it's easy to get, you know, to get in there before the deer arrive and they're feeding through and you're in a great setup. But if you don't kill your buck on that night, I know unless you're really careful about how you have this position, it can be hard to get out of that without spooking deer. And you mentioned there's, there's a strip of trees in between your staging plot and the destination plot, but I'm still wondering how do you get out of there without deer knowing you're around? Do you have someone pick you up or is there a little way you can sneak out the backside? Yeah. So we've done that. We've had um, someone pick us up, um, but that doesn't necessarily always, you know, schedules don't necessarily always line up for having someone else come pick you up. So, we've stayed in the blind before, um, till well after dark, you know, an hour or two after where you can still sometimes glass providing the moonlight, um, and make sure that the deer has left or whatever. Um, and then in, in this, with this setup, there's only really three access points because when we designed this, we had to, um, doze the trees out to make the plot. And so when we dozed it out, we piled those up, those trees into that, um, that, buffer strip of trees that we left in between the food plot and the ag field. And we use that as well as kind of a, a way to get in and out undetected by traveling behind it. Um, nice. Wherever the deer might be. Um, that kind of also created another issue, which is a different subject, but (laughs) we later found out that, you know, that that's actually a a good, um, good way to provide cover for predators, you know, for bobcats and, and um, coyotes to den in. So sooner than later, we'll most likely get rid of a lot of those in there. But um, as far as from a hunting standpoint, it's it's provided a good sense of cover for getting in and out um, undetected. Yeah. Now you mentioned the weather conditions that you like to wait for. When you don't have that kind of weather, are you just not going to hunt or do you do some kind of glassing or do you go to different places? Like, What's your take on the off weather days? Yeah, I think it's super crucial not to, um, I mean, if your wind is wrong, then I think most of us know that it, it's not, 
it's not even an option to go in there and, and try to hunt on the wrong wind. Uh, and, and I would, if I don't have somewhere else to hunt, which usually I do, um, but if I don't, then I would use that opportunity as, um, on that particular area as a, a scouting evening where I can, I can see a lot of that from the road. So I would go to the road and be able to, to glass that ag field, which is a destination food source, um, with my, my spotting scope or binoculars. Um, you know, I can't see into that food plot really very well at all from the road, but I can at least see where they're headed to. And then I've also got, usually I've got a couple cell cams on that plot. So can get an idea of at least, you know, a number of deer that are going in and out of there. Yeah. So, so much of these early season hunts, it's, it's getting that timing, right? If you have a spot like this, it's this gen, it's just then picking the right night to go in there. But what about this kind of tricky scenario? It's kind of, simple when you know like oh we got the cold front coming in and i've got this dynamite spot this should be the day to go in uh and then the flip side could be oh i've got pictures of this buck moving in daylight on my cell cam i should go in but what if you get the scenario where you've had a handful of days where he has showed up in daylight or, or really close to daylight um so you would say okay i gotta get in there maybe this is your first day with a good wind after those daylight pictures you're thinking now's my day to strike but you don't have the good cold front. It's warm. It's hot. Would you still go in after him because of the daylight pictures the day or two before? Or would you say, ah, the, the weather's too warm. It's 80 and balmy and humid. I got to wait until the weather lines up too. Yeah, I would, I would try it for sure. Um, if, if I think that I have an opportunity at him, I would, I would definitely, um, if he's showing up in daylight, um, and and the wind is right I, I would definitely give it a shot a lot of times what we've done as well is we'll go back and correlate the data on the weather patterns like for instance say um oh say the wind was out of the the northeast and it, a northeast wind would work in that in that um that plot that i'm talking about and so with a, this northeast wind it was just like a, a really light cool front the weather didn't change a whole lot but you've got the right wind and he's showing up. Um, so we'll, on those winds, we'll go back and look at the wind as to when he was showing up in daylight on those, um, on that, that food plot and try to correlate that with when we go back in and, and try and hunt him. So if it's a marginal wind and you've got the, the weather data backing up when he's showing up in daylight, I would suggest definitely trying it. But, um, you know, if he's showing up on a South wind and, um, the days prior to, um, and, it was, you know, you've got, you've got a, a change in the, the wind and a little bit change in the weather. Um, I'd still probably try it, but a lot of times we'll go back and try to correlate when, when he's showing up and make that move based off the history of, of what's been going on in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fun when you can mine that data and find the little clue that tells you, oh, this, this is when he does that thing. I love that. That's exactly right. It is. Um, so what if I took you off of your properties that you know well? And I was going to drop you in another place in Missouri, let's say, farm you've never hunted before. And now you have, you know, let's say five days to try to kill a buck on the first week of your season there in Missouri. Uh, walk me through what you would do to try to figure this place out and, and get a buck killed in five days or whatever on a brand new spot. So you don't have that food plot. You don't have the cell cams giving you weeks worth of data or years worth of data. How do you put together this quickly, this game plan quickly? Well, it's going to make it tougher. That's for sure. Um, I would say I would try to locate what food sources are on the property. Um, 
the access points where, you know, where you can access the farm. Maybe it's just one, one certain area, um, which kind of designates you to a certain wind direction because, uh, you know, I've, I've found through my years of bow hunting, if you can try your hardest to make something work on a farm when you only have one access point, but you're going to have to go trudging through the entire farm to get to that other side. And it just, it rarely works. So with that being said, I, I'm going to figure out what my access points are, what the right wind is, what the food source is that they're using. Um, and then, I mean, basically I'd say what off of, um, what you've just told me, you have no, no trail camera inventory. Um, I'm just going to hope and pray and that, that there's a maturity or using that farm and, um, and try to kill him. But, um, you know, that, that goes back to what it used to be like in the nineties. And, you know, sometimes I, I miss, I miss that just because of the sheer fact that you've got in the back of your mind, you have no idea what, what could show up. So yeah, I, I would look for the, for the, the key access points on the farm that you can utilize and then, um, what wind direction is going to work out right for you. And, um, from there, figure out what the food, the main food source is. Yeah. Focus on food. So that's something that a lot of folks and you know, I've seen it too. We know that focusing on food works in September. That's what a buck's life revolves around right now. Uh, so that's something that hopefully a lot of people are doing right. But what do you think when you look back either on your own hunts or on seeing what other people have done, what do you think the biggest mistake or two is that people make during this month is? Uh, I would have to say probably overpressuring an area. I think that it, it can definitely be done. You can get away with a whole lot more early season than you can, um, late season, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should hunt every single night, especially if the wind is wrong. And I've seen it time and time again, where people think that they can get away with it and try to hunt with the wrong wind and, you know, when I was younger, I, I used to do that all the time and I, it's not going to work in my opinion. So I would just say, make sure that you're, you're gathering the most intel that you possibly can and make your choices wisely. And I know that everybody's schedule is different, um, including my own. Um, and sometimes it just doesn't pan out, but I would say hunt smart rather than, than hunt hard. That's, I, th- I feel like the only time that you really should be hunting and truly hunting hard is during the rut, in my opinion. Yeah. So when it comes to picking your times to hunt, here's one that there's a popular opinion on it, and then there's a contrarian. Uh, how about mornings in September? Would you ever do it? I per- I've, I've done it. Um, I personally don't usually do it very often at all, um, very rarely. Uh, but I've also seen people be successful doing it. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it, I personally don't, don't do it, um, hardly ever, uh, unless I'm hunting for does or something like that. It just, it just seems tough sometimes, uh, to catch them going back to bed. And you, 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 sir, I certainly would never try to hunt a food plot in the morning in September. Um, I, I don't even know how you get away with that unless you had some sort of food plot close to bedding and you for sure knew that these deer were all coming back from the ag and they were going to filter through there in, in daylight. But I just, I personally have, have yet to really see that ideal setup, uh, at least in the Midwest. Uh, and it might work in Western states for sure. You know, like Wyoming, I've, I've hunted in September in the mornings there and been very successful, but that's, 
that seems to be a whole different realm of, um, of hunting out there. What, what do you do in a place like that though, to pull off a morning hunt? Is it just cause they travel a long ways and you can catch them on their feet later or what do you need to do to make that kind of situation pan out? Yeah, they do travel a lot further there. It seems like, and another thing that I, that I'm not sure if many people are aware of or not, but a lot of those deer, um, on those ranches in, in Wyoming are very conditioned to cattle ranchers on their, their UTVs and whatnot. So you could, you can drive in there on a UTV. I mean, I would actually prefer it driving in on a UTV where they're conditioned to hearing that, seeing that and having someone drop you off at your tree stand. Whereas, or rather than walking in and, and spooking the deer out, then they, they don't come back. If you, if they see you on foot or hear you come in or whatever, smell you. Um, so in those instances, it did work. You know, we, we, I've literally been on hunts in Wyoming where we've been dropped off on UTV. Like the deer have ran off, just trotted off into the woods and you get set up and then whoever dropped you off leaves and they come right back in because they're conditioned to those, right. those vehicles. And they don't see that as a sense of danger. Yeah. Kind of counterintuitive when we're always worried about hunting pressure, but it is true that they get used to some things. Yeah. Uh, so last question, quick question here, which is worse in the September bow hunting world, mosquitoes or the hot temperatures? And then whichever one you pick, how do you best deal with it? Uh, I usually, the only place that I've ever really battled mosquitoes was in North Dakota and with a thermocell that actually seemed to work really, really well. So I wouldn't say that was the worst part. I would say that early season uh, heat can sometimes be the worst. And <laughs> the only way to battle it is to dress light. I mean, I don't, I don't have too many tricks up my sleeve for that. I'm, I'm used to being hot here in Missouri right now. It's in the nineties and Oof. we're working outside a lot and uh, it's humid and we just, adapt to it and you get used to the heat. Uh, and so I, I would say it's definitely worse than mosquitoes, but, uh, I just battle through it. I, I, I would say that late December, early January cold is much harsher than, than the, dealing with the heat. I would much rather have heat, have to deal with heat than cold. Granted, you know, we want the cold late season because the deer really get on their feet, but yeah, I, I don't have just, I don't, I don't know. I don't have some hidden trick to deal with the heat of it. Just to dress light. <laughs> Suck it up. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm right. right. I'm right there with you. Well, uh, appreciate this, Sean. Good stuff. And uh, good luck in Missouri and everywhere else you're hitting. Yeah. Thanks. You too, man. Okay. And to round things out, we're going to finish it up with Brennan Nading from the breaking point TV. All right. So Brennan, when you think, of September bow hunting. What's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Weather. No doubt. Hands down weather. Uh, just keeping an eye on, uh, you know, trends, obviously watching for those, uh, significant drops in temperature, um, might not be 15 or 20 degree drops, but anywhere where you're getting something more than seven, eight degree drop in temperature. I'm really paying attention to that. Obviously I'm, I'm watching the barometric pressure as well, but, uh, those big changes in weather, um, storm fronts coming in, get nasty weather that kind of get deer to hold up for, you know, more than 12 to 16 hours. If you can get on the front end of those or the back end of those, those are usually 
when I've had my best early season success and I am constantly watching the weather. And I mean, that goes for the whole season, but it's really important, you know, that first month of the season. How do you think that the cold front impact or the weather impact in September compares to the impact it has on deer in, let's say, the other three months, October, November, December, when when most people are hunting? Do you think September has the biggest weather influence or what do you think? Um, I think it's equally as effective all year, all season long, but that early season, a lot of these deer are still on their summer patterns, um, bed to feed, feed to bed. And, uh, it's just when they get laid up and stressed out from a weather front or a storm, um, that's when we have had our best luck early season is, you know, on the front end and the back end of these huge weather fronts early on in the season, when it's pretty much disrupting their summer feeding pattern that they've been, you know, used to for the last month, month and a half, two months. Yeah. So, so while the weather influence maybe isn't changing deer behavior more than it does in October or November, right? Cold fronts are great no matter what, but the predictability of what they're doing in September is so much so that you can take advantage of the front maybe easier than other times. Yeah, for sure. I can agree with that. It's, uh, I don't know. I guess one way to look at it is like in September, they're, they're still about putting weight on for the rut. They're not necessarily worried about breeding yet. Um, and I think later on in October and into November, those cold fronts are equally as good, mostly because it gets the nose moving, but those bucks are going to be moving irregardless that time of year. So it's like early season, you're really taking advantage of their, their summer patterns. And when their summer patterns get disrupted by a weather front, um, catching them at that time of the year is, is in my opinion, easier because they're more predictable because they're still on that bed to feed. They're not thinking about does just yet. So what are your favorite places to catch them then? Um, it kind of depends. We spend a lot of early season hunting in, uh, in North Dakota, um, North Dakota, obviously, and in a lot of parts of the state, you can feed them there. And we kind of place, uh, we're, we're feeding them. We're kind of setting up, you know, and a lot of times we're hunting near cattail marshes and we're still trying to find those, uh, you know, those big food sources, whether it's soybeans or corn or sunflowers or alfalfa. And we're just trying to pretty much interrupt or get in between, you know, those marshes where they're bedding and these huge food sources. And we kind of put a little appetizer on the way and hopefully they'll make a pit stop. Nice. Do you find that any kind of, I guess what I'm, what I'm curious about is picking your spots when you've got, you know, maybe a number of different options. Maybe there's a soybean field somewhere. Maybe there's an alfalfa feed field somewhere. Do you find that there's any factor that will influence what they hit? Like a cold front hits and they're really drawn to X while, and when it's hot and muggy and just a normal September evening, they generally tend to go to, you know, option A or B. Is there anything like that? Or is it more just wind and bedding related? It's a lot of it out there is access. Um, in North Dakota, it's, if anyone's ever been out there, it's, it's not, at least the area that we hunt, there's not a lot of, uh, like thick cover there. These deer are pretty much living in cattail marshes, like timber and, you know, a lot of other things that most people in the Midwest are used to just is non-existent out there aside from, you know, you might find a two, three, five acre woodlot here and there, but those deer are living in cattail marshes. So a lot of the spots we're setting up, we're paying attention to our access. How can we get into these 
spots and get out of these spots without boogering deer. Um, we try to set up our spots so we have uh, options of hunting on, you know, all kinds of different winds. Um, but our main thing is never blowing our wind towards where these deer are assumingly bedded or how, you know, how our approach, we never want them to catch, you know, drift of our wind. So it's, but I would say like in the cold, cold snaps, um, it just gets them on their feet earlier. I mean, the deer out there, we see deer every sit. It's just a matter of if we can get them in bow range for the most part. So it's like on those cold fronts, it just seems that they're up earlier. It's, you know, hour and a half before dark versus 15 minutes before dark. And, you know, on those colder nights, those deer, they, especially on those evenings when the wind calms down, you know, that half hour, hour before dark, those deer get on their feet and, and they want to feed. So it's just a matter of uh, catching them. A lot of times if the temperatures are warm and uh, it doesn't really drop off at night, that's when you're seeing those deer kind of pop up those last 10 minutes and they more or less just stand there and wait for it to get dark before they want to go anywhere. Yeah. So how do your setups differ on the hot nights versus the cold front days? Are you setting back more conservatively and and observing on the warmer days and then getting to the best of the best on the cold front or, or what? For sure. Yeah. Um, and I know we kind of discussed this before we started recording, but, uh, yeah, if the weather ain't right, it, it's come down to the point where we'll sit out a day or two and just kind of scout from a distance. Um, these spots that we're kind of putting all of our, you know, putting all of our eggs in the basket on some of these bigger deer, it's, uh, you might only get to sit them once a week, maybe twice a week. And those other nights, um, it's, it's more or less scouting and, and staying out of there, even though it's, it's hard to sit out an evening where you want to be hunting. It's, uh, in the grand scheme of things, you gotta, you gotta play, you got to play cards when you got the best option or, you know, the best weather opportunities and, and a lot of uh, sitting around is definitely going to take place. What about mornings hunt mornings or sit them out? Sit them out. Um, I don't typically hunt mornings anywhere um, until probably around the 20, 25th of October, just because, uh, in my opinion, it's not worth it. Not to say you can't go kill a big buck in the morning because people do it all the time, but, uh, it's a long season and I, I just don't think the, the reward is, is worth the risk, um, hunting mornings early season. Okay. Uh, that brings me to something that maybe, maybe what you just mentioned is one of these things, but when you hear the biggest or most common September whitetail mistakes, what comes to mind for you? What are these mistakes that either you've made the most or that you see other people making the most in this early part of the year? I would say it's, you know, overpressuring spots and hunting them when the conditions aren't right. I mean, obviously, you know, over the years, people are more and more uh, aware of you got to pay attention to your wind and your access. And I think people are starting to realize the importance of weather fronts. Um, and I think the biggest mistake a lot of people make early season has to come between, you know, messing with trail cameras and just sitting spots that aren't ready to be sat yet. And meaning they're sitting them on, you know, poor weather days or they're slipping in and checking cameras when they're blowing their wind in the wrong spots. I would have to say those are probably the biggest early season mistakes that I see. Okay. So then cameras, how do you use cameras in September so that they aren't a mistake? Um, 
Well, now we've transitioned into cell cams for the most part. So a lot of these spots, we don't even have to check them anymore. But uh, where we are still running normal cameras, if we can't get cell service or we just simply don't have enough cell cams, we won't even, I mean, we're checking them. If we do check them, we'll check them, you know, midday, typically between 10 and 2. And we'll only check them if the wind's right. And by that, I'm saying if, if it's a spot where we won't hunt it on a south wind, we're not going to check that camera on a south wind either. So. Yep. Okay. So let's say we pulled you out of North Dakota, your favorite spot yeah. probably to hunt in September. And instead, I was going to drop you in another kind of Midwest-ish state that has a September opener. It could be Wisconsin mid-September. It could be Nebraska early September, whatever. Let's say I drop you into a new piece of ground and you've got a week to kill a buck in September. Walk me through your high-level game plan. And, and this is some place you've never been before. So tell me, how would you figure it out quick? How would you get started and, and what you think would be the key to your success there? If I got dropped somewhere, I would probably, if you're giving me seven days, I would probably spend the first four days scouting, um, using online mapping, um, kind of trying to figure out as much as I can without stepping foot in there and alerting the deer. I'm going to, you know, scout online. I'm going to scout from the vehicle. I'm going to drive around in the evenings and the mornings, try and see if I can get eyes on deer, kind of see what they're doing. Uh, find their preferred food source and try to come up with a game plan, how I can get between where these deer are going to bed and where they're coming out to feed. But I think a lot of people will make the mistake of just jumping in and they think they got to be in the tree day one. And that's not the case. I I think it's a lot more, uh, you know, it's a lot more rewarding to just sit back and it's, it's tough to have that patience, but sometimes you just got to sit back and, uh, scout from a distance and then you know a lot of times that's going to pay off when you finally do jump in the tree you're going to have a way better opportunity rate in my opinion once you sit back scout and, and go in there yeah so what what about if you go in you, you've done this scouting you you observed you see something that you want to you want to make a move on you get in there get set up night number one you see a shooter buck out of range i'm curious how fast yeah. do you pivot in that kind of situation, will you move to hunt that buck where he was the next day? Or do you need to see things a couple times? Like how quickly do you move in September on that kind of hunt? If he's coming through an area out of range and he's doing it like with no care in the world, you can tell he's done it before he was, you know, he has no idea that you're in that area. I'm making a move the very next sit. Nice. Okay. Last question. What is the worst thing about hunting whitetails in September? <laughs> those those uh, three four day stretches where the weather sucks. It you, you're pretty much you're best off waiting for the next weather front. And the worst part about September is the in between the in between good weather um, for sure because you're like you said you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs for the most part. So then the follow-up question is, if that's the worst thing, like what's the best way to deal with that thing? Is it just making the most of that time in the scouting that you do or, or what? For sure. I think, yeah, um, scouting new areas. Like if you've got kind of something pinned down in an area and you know, you know, it's a matter of waiting for the next good weather front. Um, I use those days and that time to check out new areas that I've never been to before um, and and really try to find another 
option for if if plan A fails. I like it. All right, Brennan, that is everything I got for you. I appreciate it. Good luck in North Dakota this year. I appreciate it, man. All right, and that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this one. I got to tell you, I am pretty amped up myself. Uh, As of the recording of this, I will be leaving tomorrow for my first hunt of the year. And you'll be hearing this uh, when I'm almost done with that hunt. So it's here. Everything we've been working on this winter, this spring, this summer, it all leads up to this. And I guess I'll leave you with just a couple final thoughts. And this is stuff that I I bring up a lot. And it's not directly related to deer hunting in the kind of way that, you know, hunting green food sources is or understanding how deer operate with the wind. Uh, but this stuff kind of applies above and beyond all that, which is kind of the the head game of it all. Uh, if you haven't listened, go back and listen to the episode I shared last September. I think it was 10 steps to the best hunting season of your life, something like that. And it was all about this mental side of it, how you deal with challenges. Because you know what? When the season starts and the season gets going, we are going to face adversity. Stuff's going to go wrong. Our plans are going to get crushed by who knows what. So we got to be prepared to stay positive and push through it and look for what the next best option is. Keep on going. Uh, And finally, we got to have fun. Got to remember that this is supposed to be a good time. And I've talked about it many times over the years. So you know it if you've been listening, but I definitely am very goal oriented. I can get very wrapped up in the quote unquote mission of this thing, right? I really want to achieve this goal. And when things don't go my way, sometimes that can bum me out and take the fun out. And, and I've been working really hard to try to fight that and get better at that. And I know there's some of you like that too who are so diehard about trying to fill that tag that sometimes you get wrapped up in it and lose sight of the fun. So let's try to do that a little less this year. When you find yourself bumming or grumbling into your head, you know, just saying, ah, this sucks, this isn't going to work, this is a waste of night, blah, 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 just, just stop, whoa. Like say, whoa, let's shake it off. This isn't why I'm out here. I'm going to enjoy it. Even though that guy walked through here and scared every deer, well, then I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is. Or I'm going to find a way to pivot make an adjustment and make the best of it because life's too short not to enjoy every single one of our hunts. This is, this is it. So let's enjoy it. And with that, I'm wishing you all the best of luck for those of you. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.